The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Take a deep breath. We're going to read verses 1 to 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, 
I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. This is an this is an amazing story. Um, it's amazing because it's super weird, and those are my favorite kind of stories uh, in the Bible, uh, are the super weird ones. Um, it sounds like the whole thing has like, the, like a fairy tale sound to it, like magic beans, you know? Uh, I, don't, I have a 10-year-old son. When he was a baby, uh, I was at Beeson, and so uh, it felt very much like people just showed up and handed me a child and said, you figure it out. And so my wife goes back to work. I'm in school part of the time, and I'm home with him the rest of the time, which is such a gift. But I remember you know, trying to come up with everything I could to entertain a child or to care for a child. And, and so I would tell him stories, and I remember, like, I'll tell him this Jack and the Beanstalk story. That's what I'll do. I'll tell him that story. So I begin to tell him that story, and, and you know, it's like, yeah, hey, man, there's this kid, and he, uh, he sells a cow for some magic beans. And, like, this is a really depressing story. Like, I didn't, didn't realize that until you start telling it to a baby. And then you're like, oh, you know, it's like he, he, you know, he sells his cow because they're so poor, and then he has beans, and he throws them out the, his mom gets mad, throws them out the window, and there's beanstalk grows and he, and he climbs up the, the story, uh, sorry, up the, up, the, up the beanstalk and he, and he meets this giant and, and he says something like, Steve, I foe, foam, I smell the blood of an Englishman. I'm like, where's the story going? Did my parents tell me this? It was just, it, but it's this whole story about like this fairy tale about this great adventure and, and it just feels, this story has that feel to me, like, like magic beans is what Jesus is offering. Like how can this be real, the things that he says? But the weirdness of the story John sets up for us like right away, right away. And, and it's not so much because there is a Samaritan woman talking to Jesus. That, that, that's a little odd socially. But what's really weird is just the opening, opening of this chapter where he says this. He says that he goes and they leave Judea and they departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sakar. And they're near this field and Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's the super weird part. Like this whole, the weirdest part of this whole story, and it's weird, is that part right there. And John has set us up for this because he's described Jesus just one page over this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was a life, 
And the life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's talking about Jesus with what we would say, what they they teach you to call high Christology. He's speaking of Jesus in the highest possible terms. In the very beginning, when God made everything, Jesus was there. And everything that he made was made for Jesus and through Jesus. He is God himself. One page over, he's sitting by a well tired. That's just weird. That the God who made everything is worn out from a day's journey and he's sitting by a well while his disciples go getting food. Like how do you put, like how do we hold those things together in our brain? Augustine said it this way. Uh, Augustine, he's a long time ago. One time I thought I had an original idea and then I read it in Augustine. It was like 1600 years ago. So uh, Augustine, Augustine said it this way. He says, in this story, you see a strong Jesus and a weak Jesus. You see a strong Jesus because everything that was made was made for him and through him and by him. Everything. Strong Jesus. And you see a weak Jesus because he sits beside a well. It's in his strength that he created you. It's in his weakness that he pursued you to make you new. Man, that's the best thing I'm going to say because somebody else said it. A strong Jesus and a weak Jesus. It's as if what you're getting a picture of, it's as if the picture that John has painted, as if the author of the story has stepped into it. Because that's what's happened. And he paints this picture for us of this crazy, crazy scene, which has amazing implications, right? Because, because it reveals something to us about the character of God and the way that he works. The, char- the character and the work of God, th- those things... Those things always go to gear, get together, the, the, the character, what he's like and what he does. And, and it, that's true mostly for humans. Um, I, I was in college uh, a long time ago, and uh, a buddy of mine calls me, Billy. Let's call him his name Billy. That is his name. It's Billy. So we, Billy calls and says, hey, man, what are you doing? I said, I'm about to go to class. I got class, and then I'll be back home. He goes, hey, man, I've never been whitewater rafting. I was like, are we going? He's like, yeah, let's go right now. I was like, cool. So we packed up all our stuff. Um, hey, Sanford parents, I was at a public school, like a state school, not your kids. Like that was, they wouldn't do that. Uh, but us, us state schools kids, we absolutely did that kind of stuff. So we, uh, so he comes and picks me up and, and uh, we, we drive up, we, we take our bikes and we, we, we ride Solly, we get up the next day, we go to this river and uh, they, they give you these suits that for some reason smell like pee and you put those wetsuits on and then you get on a bus that for some reason smells like pee. And then, and then you, you go up the river and they put you out on these big rubber rafts. And, and dude, we're just giddy. I've never, I've never been either. It was just a great adventure. Uh, and they put me and Billy in the front of the raft. Behind us, there's this, this young girl and her father and what is clearly a brand new guide for the river. And uh, they say, hey, we're going to do this. And we're like, Let's go. And so you start off, and you can see the other boats in front of you, and, and you go, and, and we see the first rapid up here on the left. We see people kind of going through it, and we're like, yes! And our God says, hey, guys, we're going to steer to the right of this rapid. Okay. We steer to the right. We come around the next bend. It's still kind of flat, and you see the next rapid, and it's on the left again, and, and, and she says, guys, we're just, we need to stay to the right of this just a little bit. Move to the right side of the river. Okay. We come around a corner, it's the biggest one we've seen yet. We see the boat in front of us down the river, it goes through this huge rapid right in the middle. And as we approach it, she says, guys, we need to steer to the left of this rapid. Billy and I, without even looking at each other, begin to paddle right at it. <laughs> she goes, ah, ah, ah. We hit that rapid, 
and the boat does this. I'm at the top of that, holding on like this. <laughs> and I have one of those, um, this is a dated reference, but a matrix moment, like where the time freezes for a second, you know, and you have time to think about things. And I'm hanging there, and I look down below me, and Billy's below me. And I have a second to think about all the things that Billy's done to me. <laughs> what Billy's like. And so I, I just, I just let go. I pick my paddle up, and I go sliding down the boat, and I slam into Billy. And Billy goes flipping out of the boat. I scramble to the front of the boat. Billy, Billy, I'm so sorry. Billy, that was an accident. I slipped. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to tell you what Billy said, because it was inappropriate. <laughs> Catch up. Finally, the boat, and Billy puts his hands on the side of the raft, and he launches himself into the air like a dolphin. It was beautiful. He lands on the side of that rubber raft like this and launches straight at me and hits me in the chest. I go flipping out of the boat. We look back. This dad's holding his daughter. <laughs> the point of the story is this. Billy says inappropriate things and does inappropriate things and deserves to be knocked out of boats. That's what he's like. He's fun, and he was so, much great, so great to be around, and that was his character. And, and so the things that you do with Billy are going to be reflective of, of his character. And, and, and us humans, we're, we're all like that, except, except for this, that we can, actually, we can actually do things that don't line up with our character. We can actually be nice when we don't feel like being nice. Try it. Uh, the people around you will be glad. We, we can actually act out of character. God cannot. God does not act out of character. What God is like, what he does, they're the same. What he does reflects what he is like. And what this says is mind-blowing about God's character. It says this. It says, look at the links that I will go to to keep my promises. And then it's not just that God came from heaven to earth. It's the way that he does it. It's... it's it's that God's character seems to be, his heart seems to be for the outsider. Not the insider, not the powerful. It seems to be those, there seems to be a marked weakness about Jesus' entire ministry. Like the things that he does, as a matter of fact, at one point, John, his cousin, is one of the first guys to say, you should follow Jesus. The one who declared, like, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. At some point later in Jesus' ministry, John ends up in jail. And he hears about all the stuff that Jesus is doing, and he sends a messenger to Jesus. And the message is this, are you really the one or should we look for somebody else? I don't get what you're doing. It doesn't seem like strength. Peter, his disciple, Man, his disciples, man, poor guys, they're constantly asking Jesus, like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, why, why do you keep talking about suffering and dying? This is no way for us together of following. <laughs> what are you doing? Jesus responds, get behind me. You don't, even, you, don't stand in my way. Jesus' entire ministry seems to be, from the outside, an entire ministry of weakness that turns out to be the most amazing strength we could have ever imagined. The destruction of death and hell. Right? The destruction of death and sin. But this, his entire ministry is one that, by every human standard, is an absolute failure. 
He's constantly going to those who are hurt and they're broken and in need. And he's just constantly spending time with them and pouring his life into them, which tells us something about God's character, which tells us something about what we who claim to follow Jesus, we who are followers of Jesus, what we get to do. I think a lot of times that some of us look around at our lives and say, hey, there's, there's, I feel weak. I don't have kind of the power to have influence that I wish that I had for the cause of Christ. Let me tell you right now, it seems to be the way of God that the influence that we have is going to be through weakness. Through our apparent weakness. That God is going to work to change the world. It's what he did in Jesus and it's what he's going to do in our lives as well. It seems as if when we follow the way of Jesus, what he says is things, just crazy things, like love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. That, that's not a way to get ahead in the world, to, to get up and, and, and to be actively concerned about how my, the well-being of the people that I know in my life, especially after he defines neighbor as everybody. I mean, I'm not up late at night scrolling through my Amazon wish list wondering what to get my neighbor. I'm worried about me. And he says, no, it's in this weakness of not worrying about getting ahead that I'm going to work and there's going to be a power beyond anything that you can imagine because apparently this is the way God is and what he does. When, when you actually pray for good things for your enemy, people who have hurt you, that's no, that's no display of strength. Not by any worldly standard, but it seems to be the way of Jesus and the way that God works in this world. When we, when we forgive, I know that sounds like a, like a little thing, but I cannot overemphasize the power of a community like this who when you get your feelings hurt, you forgive. There's gospel, godly power in those things that by any worldly standard are weakness. But it's the power of God who accomplishes things in those moments. Not only gives us the strength to be able to do that, but also does something far beyond anything that we could do. According to this opening very weird few verses, man, God's this way, and he's called us into following him this way. All right, let's keep going. After this, um, there comes a, a woman of Samaria to draw water, and um, Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And she thinks this is weird. The disciples have gone. It's just Jesus by himself. She thinks it's weird because Samaritans uh, don't have any dealings with Jewish people, and especially men and women. There's all kinds of societal barriers here that should not happen. And Jesus talks to her, and she's kind of surprised by this. It's like, hey, what, how is it that you, uh, you ask me uh, for a drink? Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Which is not how conversations work. Jesus does this all the time. He says the weirdest things. Uh, hey, uh, we're not supposed to be talking. Hey, if you knew who it asked, you'd ask me, and I'd give you living water. What? I would have given you living water. And she trying to keep up, asks a reasonable question. You, you don't have a bucket. <laughs> How are you going to get the water? And Jesus says, 
Uh, she said, you have this living water. You get this living water. You greater than our father Jacob. So they're Jacob's well, right? The Jacob of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob fame, right? Uh, one of the fa- fathers and she's, uh, uh, of, the, of the Jewish faith. And he says, he gave us this well, and, and uh, his sons and his, his livestock drank from it. Like, do you think you're bigger than Jacob? And she says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sounds like magic beans. You're going to do what? It sounds like he's going to reach under his chair and put like a silver case and open it up. There's going to be like vials of glowing liquid in it. Like living water. Like it's like, uh, she's like, what is happening right now? Who is not, I wish I hadn't opened my mouth. I could have gotten water later. This guy. And he says, no, no, no. He begins to describe the living water and all the, all the benefits of it. And here's the thing. It's, it's, it's definitely mysterious, but it's not, it's not unheard of. As a, matter, as a matter of fact, it's mysterious, but it's, it's promised water that he's talking about. Like, it's, it's water that has been promised for a very, very long time. It's an image that's been used in Scripture over and over and over again. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, if you would ask me, I could give you the Holy Spirit. It says this, um, I love it in, in Jeremiah 2. Uh, it says this, it says, people have committed two evils. This is God talking to his people through Jeremiah. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, cisterns that cannot hold water. Here's what they've done. Here's what my people have done. I have offered them living water, they have chosen to dig out cisterns for themselves, and they don't even work. Man, that's the accusation. He says, listen, I've promised to pour out water. I mean, all the way through the Scripture, even when you get to Revelation, it's just water gushing out and making things grow. And God is like, why do you keep choosing cisterns? A thing that you would carve out of rock, and if it's got cracks in it, you pour water in it, and it just leaks out, and it will never hold. Living water is good right? Water that moves. This image, man, it's just so good because water is powerful. Have you ever stood, uh, seen a picture of the Grand Canyon and looked at the little river way down in it that carved it? Water is powerful. It's essential to life. When it flows, it is good. It can nourish. You can have it and it tastes amazing. Water is good. But if water is stagnant, if, if, it, if it sits it sits and it, it begins to gather and stuff begins to grow in it and this this thing that that, that was once good for you this thing that could be good for you it, it becomes just really really bad for you and it becomes nasty because it's not moving it's not living it's just dead water and he all through scripture god uses this image of pouring out his goodness his sustaining his sustaining goodness, his nourishing goodness, and his great power. And instead, people say, no, thank you, though. We'll take the bad stuff. We hew out cisterns for ourselves. We tend to, uh, over and over and over and over again, seem, it seems like something's wrong with our eyes right? Uh, that we somehow think that we can better satisfy ourselves than what God offers. We hear what God offers and goes, nope, I think I can do better. I mean, that's the, that's the story in Genesis, right? Hey, 
take Adam and Eve, place them in the Garden of Eden, supply all of this for them. Go, work it. You can eat of anything. One tree, no. But everything else, go. And they say, hey, you know what? They look at the tree and they go, hey, you know what? It's good. It's good to look at. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Surely God wouldn't deny me what's beautiful. Hey, look at that. That would be good for nourishment. It would make me stronger. Surely God wouldn't deny me what would make me stronger. Not only that, it's good for gaining wisdom. God definitely wants me to be wise. And they took their own wisdom and took of the, took of the fruit and ate it. And we look at that story and go, how silly, if, as if I don't do that every single day. As if I don't hew out a thing that I think will satisfy me. As if I don't look at what God has to offer me and go, yeah, I see what you're offering, but I really think that I need this instead. And what I've done in my life is I've hewed out a cistern. And I've filled it with water that's not living water, it's stagnant water. It becomes bad for you real fast. Not only that, it's cracked and leaking, so I'm constantly having to fill it back up. We tend to look at the promises of God and think that we can do better. It just seems easier to trust the things that we can control than trusting what God has promised. I don't know why that is. I don't know about, I don't know about you, but for me, I find it so often easier to trust God with my eternity than with my tomorrow. Why is that? I know, yeah, I know when I die I'm going to go to heaven, but you don't understand my bills. I've got to take a real tight hold on this. I know that you have, I know that you're going to save me, that I will spend eternity with you, but you know what? I can't trust you with my child. And we hang on so tightly, and what we're really doing is we're, we're carving out little cisterns. In case we don't sense God's presence, I can just go drink from this. In case I can't understand what God's doing, I at least understand this, and I can drink from it. And the problem is we are drinking death not life. She says this. A woman says to him, a very reasonable thing. I'm going to give you a swell up into eternal life. If you drink from this, you'll never be thirsty again. And she says a very reasonable thing. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. My life has been hard. My life has been real hard. And if you actually have what you're saying, Give it to me. Give it. You really have this water where I don't have to come here and do this every day? You have that? My life is really, really difficult, and if you can do that, you should definitely do it. And Jesus says, go call your husband. What? Who talks like this? This is so maddening. Like, how do you, I don't even know. Even, and look, it's not just her, man. The disciples are that way all the time. All the time, he says a thing to the disciples, and they're like, what is he doing? What is he talking about? It happens all the time. Beware the bread of beware the leaven of the Pharisees. What? Is he mad we didn't bring bread? What's going on here? It happens all the time. It's crazy. Jesus just doesn't know how to carry on a conversation. <laughs> so she says, he says, I got living water. She says, give me living water. He says, go get your husband. And she says, um, have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you're right in saying that I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus, uh, he does this thing. He, he, she says, I don't have a husband, and he reveals to her, yeah, I know. 
I know that you've been through relationship after relationship after relationship, and none of them has filled you up. I know that this is the cistern that you've hewn out for yourself. I, I know that. So, so he offers living water, and then he says, but first I need you to go bring me the bad water that you've been drinking. He does this all the time. John has set this up, by the way. He, he does it all the time. Like a rich man comes to him and says, hey, hey, what do I need to do for eternal life? And Jesus says, go give away all your money. A man who is Jewish, very, very proud of his heritage. Jesus comes to him and says, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, oh, you need to be born again. These fishermen come to him and their whole life is their career. He says, hey, no, you need to bring me your nets. I want to make you fishers of men. He's always asking you for this thing that you think is going to make you okay. Bring it to me. I was in ninth grade. In ninth grade, you had a, I had a class, one class that was with anybody older than me. It was choir. Uh, I should not have been in choir, but uh, such is life. Uh, so I ended up in choir. And uh, I remember this day. It was at the beginning of the year. My grandmother uh, would take us shopping right before the, the, the school year right, began. She bought us new clothes. And, and she had bought me... Um, back then, there was a brand called Duckhead. And uh, believe it or not, you would match that stuff up. Maybe wasn't supposed to, but I did. So I, I had this duckhead, new, new duckhead shorts. Everybody was wearing them. I had a new duckhead shirt. It was this like deep sea green, this deep green, forest green shorts in this kind of like faded, which was a popular thing at the time, I promise, red short sleeve shirt. And I was standing by the door to the choir room. We're waiting for class to get started. And the door flies open, and in bounces a cheerleader. <laughs> she may not have actually bounced, but in my head, uh, she did. So uh, here's the deal. I was, I, I didn't, we didn't hang out, right? Upper school cheerleader. I was on the math team. I, I don't know how your school was, but math team and cheerleaders didn't hang out at my school. So uh, uh, she bounces into the room, and she pauses and turns and looks at me and says five words that I remember to this day. She says, you look like a watermelon. <laughs> and then she bounced off. I was cut. I'm 44 years old. I remember that. Like, she's not somewhere right now going like, ah, I once told a kid to look like a watermelon. No, she doesn't remember that. I remember that. You know why? Because the thing that Jesus would ask for me is my acceptance. I, I want acceptance. It's a terrible thing for a pastor to want. The tendency is to tell you funny stories instead of the truth. I want acceptance. Jesus says, you want living water? I need you to bring me your craving for acceptance. I'm like, nah, can't do that. Need this. Could I have both? And the answer is no. You can't have both. You know why? Because it's bad for you. Jesus loves you too much to leave you like he found you. You've got to bring me the death. I'll give you life, but you've got to give up the death. You've got to give it up. Mine is acceptance in all manner of things. I, would, I was hoping by this age in my life I would, I would be done discovering new things that I have to turn over to Jesus, but I'm not. It's just constant. No, no, I need that too. Uh, no, no, I need that too. Man, 
because I have dug pits of death and Jesus loves me too much to let me keep drinking from them. He says to her, I know your life has been hard. I know that you've been passed around and mishandled and mistreated. I know that. If you want what I have, just give it to me. And I'll be glad to give you what I have. And she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she changes the subject, right? Because, like, that's actually, like, that's a legitimate thing to do at this point, right? That's, like, definitely looking for a change. She changes it to worship. I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know. She's like, uh, this is super awkward. Let's talk about worship. And uh, so she says, hey, let, let's talk about worship. Um, you know, the Samaritans say that we worship here, right? There's a place that we worship, and, and you say that there's a place to worship somewhere else. Like uh, in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, believe me, hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He's talking about himself. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Hey, that's a big line. The Father is seeking who? Who is the Father seeking? People who worship him in spirit and truth. So she has this understanding, a very normal understanding, by the way, of worship. That you, when, when you have sin and when you have brokenness or, or when you want to appease God or, or when you want to apologize to God, you have to go to a place, a specific place. And for her, it was very close to where they were at. It was, it was Jacob, this guy named Jacob that she's talking about, the guy who dug the well. He had a dream not too far from where they're having this conversation. He had a dream uh, where he saw a stairway uh, to heaven and and angels ascending and descending the stairway. And he said, oh my, he he named it Bethel. This is the house of God. This, like somehow, the veil between heaven and earth in this geographic location is somehow thinner than everywhere else. Somehow heaven and earth kiss here. And, and, and everybody believed that, right? You, you built uh, worship places up on mountains. Even, even the Jews would believe that. You've got to go to Jerusalem, right? Somehow God dwells there in a, I'm going to use the word concentrated way, right? Somehow God's there in a special way in, in, the, in the temple in, in Jerusalem. So you say that we have to go there, and, and, and we say that when, there, Samaritans would never have been allowed there, that we say here is where you worship. Here is where we, we practice this. And Jesus says, yeah, hey, listen, here's the deal. Salvation is coming from the Jews, but there's a time coming, and it's here even now, when it won't matter where you are geographically. Right? And here's what he's doing. John is a brilliant writer, by the way. Right before this, he has set up this story. He's calling his apostles, and he's calling, or sorry, he's calling his disciples, and uh, <laughs> he's called this guy named Philip, and uh, Philip goes and finds Nathaniel, and's like, look, man, we found the guy. We got him. We, we met him. We, we found him, and Nathaniel's it's like, where's he from? He's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel's like, no, I'm paraphrasing. And, and he says, uh, any, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And Philip said to him, come and see. So Jesus sees Nathaniel coming to him and says to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says to him, huh, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. We don't know what he was doing under the fig tree, but it must have been something, enough, something uh, I don't know, shady enough. I don't know what was happening there, but Jesus knew about it, and it scared Nathaniel. <laughs> Ugh, you are God. 
Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than this. And he answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I am the stairway to heaven. That's what he says. I am the way to God. It's not in Bethel. What you're going to see before this is over, Nathaniel, is if you want to know how you get from heaven to earth, it's not a thing I'm going to point you to. I'm the thing. I am the way that you're going to get to heaven. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Because I knew what you did, you're surprised? No, man. You are going to see heaven split open and, and the work of God coming down and going up from me. Unbelievable. So she asked a worship question. She didn't know what she'd walked into. Jesus was ready for this. And so she says, hey, where are we He said, no, it's coming now. True worship is worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such things. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the, Messiah, the woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Man, Jesus has just eradicated what we would call the sacred secular divide. That we go about our life, that we go and we do our job and we take care of our family and when it's time to worship or deal with the things that we've done, we go over to this place and we do this thing and this act and then we leave and then we go back to our life and then when it's time to go back, we go back. He says, no, it's not like that anymore. Now I'm going to place my spirit inside of you and your entire life becomes an act of worship because I am the one. I am the way in which God and you interact. Heaven and earth interact now. It's because of me. You place your faith in me, and I am the one that has it, and I go with you all the time. So there is no such thing as the sacred secular divide. There are no things that you do that God is not involved in. There's no no thoughts that you have that God is not involved in. There's, There's no way of thinking or treating people that God is not involved and present in. Paul says it like this. Your life becomes a living sacrifice. Everything, my entire life, given to God because of what he's given to me. And it's called into this way of weakness. Jesus actually calls it a death, a daily death. He says, if you want to come after me, here's what you do. You pick up your cross daily and you follow me. Every day, getting up and killing off the part of you that says, I need to take care of me. Every day getting up and killing off the part that says, I need to get ahead and instead lifting up those around me so that Christ is glorified. Serving my neighbor, loving my neighbor, forgiving those who have wounded me, humbling myself to ask forgiveness when I'm the one who's wounded. And the promise is, the promise is, he'll be with you forever. The promise is that he will give you all of this, that life will well up inside of you. That's the promise. And what you do, because he's the Messiah, is you give yourself to him, and he is the path. He is the way, and there is no other. Justin and the disciples come back. And they marvel that he's talking with the woman, but no one says anything. What do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? Like, so they come back, they're like, what is happening? Why is Jesus talking to this lady? What is he doing? But everybody's too afraid to say anything because, you know, Jesus talks weird. And so they, the woman let her jar, uh, so left her jar, and she goes away in the town and says, the people, come see this man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Hey, guys, I think maybe I found him. And so they come out of town, and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they're all like, well, then why did you send us to town? I don't understand. If you have food, 
Why do we have to go all the way to town? And so the disciples said to one another, Has somebody brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says this, The thing that sustains me, the thing that I need even more than food, more than bread, more than wine, whatever it is that you've brought me, what I need more than those things to sustain me is to be obedient to God, as it turns out, even unto death. The thing that I need to sustain me, I need you guys to learn this, he's saying to the disciples. The thing that I need even more than what you've gone is to do what God called me to do. And he's preparing them for what he's going to go do, which is to be, just like he says, to be crucified, to be buried, to raise again, to send into heaven. He's going to go and he's going to do those things. He's going to suffer the things that the Messiah, the Old Testament says the Messiah is going to suffer. It's going to happen. And you guys need to know that my obedience to that is more important to me than eating today or tomorrow or the next day. My obedience is that important. This is what Jesus calls us to do as well. He calls us to follow him. And the promise is a sustaining goodness, a sustaining presence, life flourishing. The problem is that it doesn't look like we think it should look sometimes. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't always. So we are called to follow him and trust that what he gives us is goodness. There's a famous, uh, I don't know what he is, theologian something, Miroslav Wolf. He says, uh, he said this is a great, great thing. He said, he said that uh, one of the hardest things for us to do as Christians uh, is uh, discern between bread and a stone. God says that he, even, even I mean, earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their kids. You think your father in heaven doesn't know how to give you good gifts? And so often we look at the thing in our hand and go, yeah, then why did he give me this stone? And he goes, no, no, it's bread. You just don't recognize it. Because we sometimes don't see and we don't understand that what God is doing in your life, he's, he's drawing you to him. He's using, he's blessing you whether you realize that or not. He's shaping you. He sometimes, he is prying from our cold fingers, our death grip, the thing that's killing us. He's like, no, 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 you must give that to me. Because he loves us. Because of his grace poured out. This is what God is like. This is what his character is like. This is who Jesus is. And this is who he calls us to be in the world. He is going to make change the world through what looks like death and weakness. And he's called us into that and following him. With the outsiders. With the, with the weak. He is going to change the world. He will one day come, and it says in the Old Testament... So it's in Revelation. It says in Revelation that, that the stream will just flow out of the temple, that God's presence is with us, and it will, the whole world, he's going to make everything new. And while we wait for that, we know that he has made us new. Those of us in Christ, by faith, he's made us new and placed us in this world to, through weakness, point others to Jesus. And the promises, the promises are stunning. Promises that he'll never leave you or forsake you. The promises is that even death is not a thing that he can't undo. The promises are that you will be made a child of God. The promises, unbelievable. The appropriate response, one of the appropriate responses to this is to come to the table. The body broken and the blood spilled.